السلام علیکم ہیلو اینڈ ویلکم ٹو دا وائس آف اسلام لیونگ ہسٹری پروگرام مائی نیم از ڈاکٹر محمد اقبال اینڈ آل بی یور ہوسٹ فار ٹوڈیز پروگرام ایز لسنرز ول نو دا لیونگ ہسٹری ٹیم ہیو امبارکڈ آن اے سیون پارٹ سیریز آن دا ہسٹری آف منی اینڈ ٹریڈ ان دا ماڈرن ورلڈ دیر از اے کامن سینگ اسپیشلی ان دا ویسٹ دیٹ منی میکس دا ورلڈ گو راؤنڈ دا فریز بیسکلی مینس دیٹ ایوری تھنگ ان دس ورلڈ ووڈ اسٹاپ وداؤٹ منی اینڈ ٹو سم ایکسٹینٹ This statement is true. Without money, you cannot afford a shelter on your head, buy the food to survive, or go from point A to point B, etc. Now, all nations have some sort of paper money and associated coins which we use to buy things. Most people in this day and age will associate money with the US dollar and associated coins, just as they used to associate money with the British pound and the coins associated with it centuries ago. But how did money come into the lives of human beings? How did we come to attach a value to these currencies, etc.? What role did money play in the rise and fall of nations and empires? In part one of this series, entitled Genesis Cows and Crops to Coin Trade, fellow panelists Professor Amir Sharif and Yusuf Aftab and I explored the origins of early trade and money. We looked at the early civilizations that used a variety of commodities to perform trade ranging from crops to salt and shells and moving on to the use of metals, especially precious metals like silver and gold. In today's program, or part two entitled Rise of the Great Eurasian Empires, we are going to look at the way gold and silver took center stage in trade. and the conquests that shaped many of the large and influential empires from the Achaemenid Empire of Cyrus the Great to the Athenian and Greek empires established by Alexander the Great, all the way to the Roman Empire. We will also look at the crucial developments that took place across India, especially the rise of the Great Mauryan Empire and the unification of China under Qin Shi Huangdai and the rise of the Han Dynasty. For today's program, I'm joined by my panelists, Arif Ahmed and Amjad Hussain, to discuss this fascinating subject. So, as-salamu alaykum to both of you. Wa alaykum as-salam, and uh, nice to be with you, Dr. Saeed. No, it's good to have you guys uh, back again. So, just to set the scene for today's program again, human beings um, are driven by basic needs and wants, like food, shelter, and clothing. With the advancement of civilization, wants rapidly increase in variety and numbers and the desire to have much more. Whilst an increase in innovation and productivity at home or in the tribe can provide some satisfaction, often humans have wanted more. The desire to have more has often resulted in provocations, domination and subjugation of neighbours, and so the us and them struggle has been part of human history from the earliest days. As we saw in part one of this series and in many of the other living history programs, often empire builders conquered other people and nations because they simply had the power to take the resources of their neighbors. Some conquered others to please their god or gods and to leave a legacy of greatness and others just wanted more gold and silver, more women, more land and more slaves. Now the Eurasian landmass was the cradle of civilization and it has produced some of the greatest empires and civilizations including the Chinese and the Indian civilizations 
as well as the Persian and Greco-Roman civilizations. We touched on the Persian uh, Empire founded by Cyrus the Great in part one, and we will briefly return to it and the Mediterranean area in this program also. In the East, we saw the emergence of two civilizations which for the last 2,000 years held the position of the largest economies of the world, the Indian and the Chinese civilization. So Arif, let's start with the Chinese economy and the civilization and uh, uh, their role in money and trade. Uh, thank you, Dr. Iqbal. So just to give uh, our listeners uh, some background, the Yangtze and the Yellow River provided the fertile environment for early Chinese civilizations to develop around 2500 BC. By 1600 BC, China had entered the Bronze Age with the Shang Dynasty. However, the Zhao Dynasty, which ruled from 1046 to 256 BC, was amongst the most culturally significant of the early Chinese dynasties. Uh, their rule was the longest lasting of any in China's history, ruling for around 800 years. Now, the Zhao dynasty period coincides with the ancient Greek civilization, both in terms of military innovation and might, as well as the rise of many great thinkers and philosophers. There was a greater use of iron tools from 500 BC, which revolutionized agriculture, and this led to a large population increase during this period. Uh, during Zhao rule, great thinkers like Confucius formulated new ideas and ethos, which was to have currency far into the future and far beyond China's territory. Uh, the concept of Mandate of Heaven, which we've mentioned in one of our previous programs, was developed throughout the Zhao dynasty, and this guided Chinese culture and shaped Chinese history. A just and caring ruler carried the mandate to rule, and when a dynasty or ruler became unjust, then they lost the mandate from heaven uh, and the people had the right and duty to rebel and replace uh, the ruler. Um, in 221 BC, the king of the Qin declared himself the first emperor. He was known as Qin Shi Wang Di uh, and he united China into a single empire and its various peoples and traditions into a single system of government. Although the Qin dynasty only ruled for 15 years, despite its short reign, uh, the dynasty greatly influenced the future of China, uh, particularly the Han dynasty that followed it. Uh, and during its short reign, it constructed over 4,000 miles of imperial highways, uh, which is as many as the Roman Empire. Um, other uh, things that were introduced included weights, measures and currency, which were all standardised. And the Qin dynasty laid the strong foundations for an unusually strong sense of cultural identity uh, within the Chinese people. The Han dynasty, which, as you said, was from sort of 206 to 220 uh, BCE, uh, was founded by a peasant and became the longest lasting imperial uh, dynasty. They say it lasted over 400 years. The, the Han dynasty is seen as the first golden age of Chinese civilization. During the Han Golden Age, Chinese coins were made from mixtures of metals such as copper, tin and lead. From bronze, brass or iron also, precious metals like gold and silver were uncommonly used. The, the ratios in purity of the coin metals varied considerably. Most Chinese coins were produced with a square hole in the middle this was used to allow collections of coins to be threaded on a square rod so that the rough edges could be filed smooth. 
and then threaded on strings for ease of handling. During the Han Dynasty, coins were widely used for such things as paying taxes, salaries, and fines. So quite innovative, Amjad, the, the Chinese, even in those early days. Remarkable, yes. According to the Book of Han, the Western Han, thus uh, from uh, 2002 BC to 9 AD, was a wealthy period, and an average of 220 million coins a year were produced. The granaries in the cities and the countrysides were full, and the government treasuries were running over with wealth. On average, millet cost 75 cash, and polished rice about 140 cash. Hectolitre. Uh, a horse, for instance, uh, 4,400 to 4,500 cash. A labourer could be hired for 150 cash a month. A merchant, for instance, could earn 2,000 cash a month. Apart from the uh, banling coins described previously, there were two other coins of the Western Han whose inscriptions denote their way. The Han dynasty is noted uh, for a flowering of homegrown technologies, as noted by the famed Professor Jeffrey Sachs in his excellent book, The Ages of Globalization. And a quote, A partial list of spectacular breakthroughs during the Han Empire includes papermaking, navigation, that's the rudder, mathematics, negative numbers, solutions of uh, equations, flood control along the Yellow River, the water wheel, for instance, metallurgy, that's rough iron, and seismometer. The empire also invented a model of administration that would last throughout Chinese history, a centralized national government ruling over a hierarchy of provinces, counties, districts, and villages. Confucianism was codified uh, as the state uh, ideology, unquote. With this internal unity and peace, the high productivity of mixed grain and animal husbandry farm system and effective administration, the population of the Ham Empire around one common era, 1 AD, reached an estimated 60 million people compared to the Roman Empire, whose population was approximately 45 million. The total land area of the Han Empire was also slightly bigger than the Roman Empire at their peak stages. The Romans under Marcus Aurelius in 166 CE, considered Chinese silk more precious than gold and paid China whatever price was asked. The dynasties that followed the Han dynasty continued on the path of innovation and improved productivity. The Song dynasty, thus from 96 to 179 common era, made major improvements to navigation with the introduction of nautical compass and improved shipbuilding, gunpowder and artillery. The movable type Printing press, for instance, improved metallurgy and engineering and the best porcelain in the world. And not to mention highly effective administration based uh, on the best Confucius principles of humanness, righteousness, uh, filial piety and loyalty. Amazingly innovative people, as Professor Jeffrey Sack uh, says, you know, the Chinese. Let's move on to the Indian subcontinent now and... Um, uh, from archaeological studies, in uh, India can retrace its ancient history to the Indus Valley civilization, uh, which is around 3,300 to sort of 1,700 BC. And from religious scripture, Indians can retrace their origins all the way back to the Indo-Aryan Vedic period, which is sort of 1,500 to 500 BC. However, we will look at the recorded period associated with the sort of axial age, and during the Axial Age, which is when some of the great thinkers um, came throughout the world, uh, from sort of Europe to uh, Asia as well, that's the Axial Age. 
India witnessed the establishment of the largest empires India had seen, the Mauryan Empire, which was from 322 to 185 BCE. The Maurya Empire was established under the leadership of Chandragupta Maurya and his mentor uh, Chanakya, as it says. The Arthashastra and uh, the edicts of Ashoka, the famous king of, from the Maurya, are the primary written records of the Mauryan times. The Arthashastra is a, an ancient Indian Sanskrit treatise on the statecraft, economic policy and military strategy authored by uh, Chanakya, traditionally also referred to as Kotilya and widely seen as the mentor of Chandragupta Maurya. At its peak, the empire stretched from the borders of Iran, including Afghanistan, all the way to Bengal and down towards Tamil Nadu, almost all of India. Uh, quite an amazing achievement at that stage, only later to be matched by the Mughals, but uh, this was way, way before the uh, that period, Arif, uh, just tell us a little bit more about this. Yes, so the uh, the organization of the empire was in line with the extensive bureaucracy described by Kautilya in the Arthur Shastra. Uh, there was a sophisticated civil service which governed everything from municipal hygiene to international trade. Um, and the expansion and defense of the empire was made possible by what appears to have been one of the largest armies in the world during the Iron Age. Now, according to the records uh, of the Greek historian and ambassador to the Mauryan court, um, Megasthenes, the empire wielded a military of 600,000 infantry, 30,000 cavalry, 8,000 chariots, and 9,000 war elephants, uh, besides followers and attendants. True superpower. Uh, absolutely in those massive days. armies, you can, you can imagine there. Um, the most well known and celebrated ruler of the Mauryan Empire was a grandson of Chandragupta Maurya, who was known as Ashoka, and he ruled between 272 and 232 BCE. Now, he was a brilliant commander, and he crushed revolts ruthlessly, and he expanded the empire rapidly and provided great stability during his reign. His uh, conquest of Kalinga in 262 to 261 BCE, this proved to be the pivotal event of his life. Um, Ashoka used Kalinga to project power over a large region by building a fortification there and securing it as a possession. Um, now, although Ashoka's army succeeded in overwhelming Kalinga, uh, forces of royal soldiers and civilian units, an estimated 100,000 soldiers and civilians were killed in the furious warfare, uh, including over 10,000 of Ashoka's own men. So you can see it was a very uh, bloody battle. Many, many people uh, were killed. Now, as a result of this, hundreds of thousands of people were adversely affected by the destruction and fallout of war. And when he personally witnessed the devastation, uh, Ashoka began to feel remorse. Uh, although the uh, annexation of Kalinga was completed, um, Ashoka then thereafter he embraced the teachings of Buddhism and he renounced war and violence. Uh, and he sent out missionaries to travel around Asia and spread Buddhism to other countries. Quite a character, Amjid, wasn't he, really? Um, from Empire in the, the But yeah, go, tell us a little bit more, because I know you take a deep interest in Indian history as well. Well, Ashoka maintained a large and powerful army to keep the peace and uh, maintain authority, obviously. Uh, Ashoka he expanded uh, friendly relations, as Arif alluded to, with uh, states across Asia and Europe, and he sponsored Buddhist missions. He undertook a massive public works building uh, campaigns uh, across the country. 
For over 40 years of peace, harmony and prosperity made Ashoka one of the most successful and famous monarchs uh, in Indian history. He remains an idealized figure of inspiration in modern India, for instance. Uh, there is uh, the Ashoka Chakra uh, taking this pivotal central spot in the Indian, Indian, flag, uh, yeah. Indian national flag. The uh, Ashoka Chakra is also, uh, there's a depiction of uh, Dharma Chakra, a wheel represented with 24 spokes in uh, Buddhism. During the Maurya Empire, important changes and developments affected the Indian economy. It was the first time most of India was united under one ruler. With an empire in place, trade routes became more secure. The empire spent considerable resources building and maintaining these roads. And the improved infrastructure combined with increased security, greater uniformity in measurements, for instance, and the increased use of coins and as currencies. It enhanced trade, obviously. Although there was no banking in the Mauryan society, usury was customary. During this time, India's share is estimated to have been around 32 to 35% of the world economy. I mean, really, both China and India made enormous contributions in early stages of human development. Well, let's, uh, let us now return to the Near East, uh, the, the Middle East, as we call it, uh, and the Mediterranean region. Uh, amongst ancient trading nations and cultures, the Phoenicians of the Fertile Crescent were probably the most successful trading culture of its time. We spent a lot of time talking about a lot of the other great uh, you know, empires, the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and whatever, but the Phoenicians were amazing traders indeed. Um, starting around 1500 BC, the Phoenicians began to establish coastal colonies around the Mediterranean. The most important of these colonies was that of Carthage, present-day Tunisia, founded by the Phoenicians in the 9th century BC. The Phoenicians were a relatively small group in a highly militarized region of the Near East and focused on being traders. The Bible describes them as highly successful people, but described their cities and peoples as sources of arrogance and wealth, particularly in Ezekiel in this respect. The Phoenicians were of Semitic origins, uh, living around current-day Lebanon and related to the Canaanites, whom the biblical writers did not look on too kindly, as we have covered in previous programs. Even Plato, the great Greek uh, philosopher, described them in his Republic as money-loving. That's why they were successful traders, I suppose, compared to wisdom-loving Greeks. However, they had a special place in the hearts and minds of the Greeks. So, Arif, uh, again, take us through this relationship of traders in the Near East and Middle East. Absolutely. And again, just for the benefit of our listeners, if we just uh, go back to the roots of Greek culture, uh, these are described in a colourful myth in which uh, a Phoenician princess, Europa, was abducted by Zeus, who was the chief of the Greek gods. Um, disguising himself as a tame bull, he surprised her while she was playing on the beach, and he carried her, her off to Crete. Uh, and from the courtship, Europa brings into the world King Minos, uh, and the Minoan civilization um, of our historic and archaeological records. Um, the truth behind this legend was probably well known to every Greek in Homer's time, uh, and it meant that the roots of his culture were to be found in the Middle East. Um, since the Phoenicians focused on being traders uh, and were small in number, they were no match uh, for the regional empire builders and their powerful armies. As a result, they were eventually incorporated into the great Persian empire created by Cyrus the Great and Carthage 
remained the last outpost uh, of the Phoenicians. Um, in due course, uh, the Carthaginians were also incorporated into a bigger empire, but they certainly put up an amazing fight. Um, with the introduction of gold and silver coins by the Lydians around 600 BC, trade became much easier uh, and more widespread. Cyrus the Great, uh, who ruled between 550 and 530 BC, uh, he conquered Lydia in 546 BC and he introduced uh, coins to the Persian Empire. Yeah, we covered this in the last program uh, quite a bit of detail, so sorry, carry on. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and as a result, the Achaemenid uh, Empire became the biggest and the most efficient uh, empires of its time, uh, and they issued many coins from 520 BC to 330 BC. The Persian Darik was the first gold coin, along with a similar silver coin, the Siglos, uh, which is from the Hebrew shekel, which again I'm sure many of our listeners will have heard of. Uh, and this represented the first bimetallic monetary standard. Although the gold direct became an international currency which was found throughout the ancient world, the circulation of the silver sigloi remained very much limited to Asia Minor, uh, and the rate of exchange was one direct was equivalent to 20 siglos. Now, because of the, uh, the empire's vast extent and long endurance, Persian influence upon the language, religion, architecture, philosophy, law and government of nations around the world lasts to this day. At the height of its power, the Achaemenid dynasty encompassed approximately 8 million square kilometres. It held the greatest percentage of the world population to date. It stretched three continents, Europe, Asia and Africa, and it was territorially the largest empire of classical yeah, antiquity. Much of what we know about Cyrus the Great and the enormous Persian Empire he and his successors created is through Greek writers like Herodotus and Xenophon. The Persians left very little written record of their culture and history. Um, the remarkable expansion of the Achaemenid Empire brought Persia to the doorstep of the Greek mainland, setting up the most famous and arguably the most decisive East-West clash in history, the Greco-Persian Wars of 492 to 449 BCE. So I'm just again, you know, battle of the giants now um, between the Greeks and the Persians. Take us through that period. The powerful uh, Mycenaean civilization, which had unified the Greeks in the Aegean uh, and represented by Homer in the Iliad and the Odyssey, had collapsed around 1100 to 1050 BC. The region entered what historians see as the Dark Age, followed by the rise of uh, polis. Polis is where we get the word the metropolis, the yeah, city-state, yeah, 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 usually yeah, translated yeah, yeah. as a city-state. And the two most important city-states in Greece uh, that faced rising Persian power during the classical period was Sparta and Athens. The Spartans were the most powerful state in Greece. And in uh, around 510 BC, the Spartan troops helped the Athenians overthrow the tyrant ruler and placed the pro-Spartan ruler. However, a prominent Athenians intervened and established democratic rule in Athens around um, 508 BC. The Ionian Greeks lived in Asia Minor, had refused to help Cyrus the Great against the Lydians, and they resented the rulers appointed by the Persians. During the reign of Darius the Great, this resentment turned into full revolt. In 499 BC, Athens sent troops to aid the Ionian Greeks in Asia, of Asia Minor. 
Darius saw this obviously as a declaration of war and after successfully putting down the rebellion, Darius the Great prepared to punish the Greeks and launch a large-scale uh, invasion. In 490 BC, the Athenians prevented the first invasion of the Persians at the Battle of Marathon, but the Persians returned in 480 BCE with a much larger force under the new ruler Xerxes I. The Greeks, led by the Spartan king Leonidas, had around 7,000 troops to help narrow the passage through Thelopoli against uh, 100,000 to 250,000 army of Xerxes. But obviously these are figures which can be disputed. Um, And it is said that during this, the Leonidas and 300 Spartans elites uh, were killed. However... And that's, that's, the, that's the Hollywood film. Yeah, that that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. it makes a Hollywood film, <laughs> yeah, yes. Exactly, but obviously yeah. these are, the numbers are exaggerated. Yeah, the Persian yeah. numbers are exaggerated, whereas yeah. it makes the Greeks look like yeah, heroes. Yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah, that's yeah. the story, isn't it? Yes. Uh, um, however, that delaying action at Thelopoli was not enough to discourage the Persian advance and the Athenians were forced to evacuate Athens and Persians eventually overrun most of Greece. However, the Greeks had not given up the fight and would turn the table on the Persians. Well, I mean, they were brave, and um, but you know the Persians eventually did uh, succeed in conquering Northern. This is probably a good place to pause, uh, and then inshallah we will carry on uh, in the second part. So hopefully joining uh, listeners in a short while. So welcome back to the second part of our program on uh, the the great Eurasian uh, empires. Um, so we were um, discussing the the. The Battle of the Titans, the the Persians, which you know at that stage was the greatest empire, uh, and how really they clashed against the city states, uh, Sparta and Athens, that uh, came together. I think all the city states came together to fight the Persians, and we looked at the Battle of uh, Thermopylae. But you know, although wars cause a lot of misery and destruction. The conflict with the Persians proved to be quite a beneficial um, thing for the Greeks, especially for Athens. Firstly, it created a stronger and deeper Greek identity, uniting all the Greek city-states, which were always fighting with each other (laughs) before that, and they now could focus on a foreign invader. And secondly, it promoted the city-states to look for sources of gold and silver to fund the war effort. And this was a g- amazing development for the Greeks, wasn't it, Arif? Uh, absolutely. They had a very uh, good slice of luck. Oh, yeah. so, so just before the second Persian invasion of Greece, uh, Athens had the good fortune to find one of the biggest deposits of silver uh, around the ancient mines of Lorien. Uh, these mines were located in southern Attica, uh, approximately 50 kilometers south uh, of Athens. And, and while the, uh, the mines are best known uh, for producing silver, there was also a, a big source of copper and lead. Um, the massive deposits of silver in these mines meant at the beginning of the second Persian invasion of Greece, the Athenian state had at its disposal 3,000 tonnes uh, of silver. Now that's a lot of silver a massive for that amount, time. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. so great wealth there. Um, and the Athenian leader at the time, uh, Themistocles, he proposed that this money should be used towards the building of 200 long warships called uh, triremes, which could be used to fight against the Persians. Themistocles also believed that as Greeks were outnumbered by the Persians, uh, they should avoid fighting on land and they should try to defeat the Persians at sea, which was a form of uh, warfare 
uh, highly suited to the Athenians. So the background to this is that it's estimated that there was around 20,000 slaves who worked in the mines to produce the silver for the fleet that Themistocles demanded. Uh, and these ships were used to conduct the naval campaign against Persia, culminating in the victory at the Battle of Salamis in 480 BC and Athenian victory. Uh, again, one year later, without a navy to support the troops, the Persian king Xerxes returned or retreated to Asia uh, and forever abandoned his attempt to conquer Greece. So you can see this is a great chain, a turning point uh, in history, you can say. You just think if they didn't have that silver, it would have been, would have very been game over for yeah. them. And so, the, you know, that resource was such an important development for them. Yes. Sorry, carry on, Ali. Uh, and absolutely. So many historians believe that uh, a Persian victory would have stopped uh, the progress of ancient Greek civilization and by extension Western civilization as a whole, uh, leading them to argue that Salimis is one of the most significant battles in human history. It's a true turning point uh, in history that people uh, will recognize. Uh, now, the ships that had helped to win the Battle of Salimis uh, were paid for with silver from the mines of Lorient. Uh, so it would be safe to say that these mines in the southern part of Attica uh, and the miserable labour of the enslaved men there contributed significantly to the saving of Western civilization. Um, Athens had led a coalition of Greek city-states to defeat the greatest empire on earth, the Persian Empire, and after peace was made with Persia in the mid-5th century BC, uh, what started as an alliance of independent city-states became an Athenian empire, as Athens abandoned the pretense of parity between its allies and relocated the Delian League treasury from Delos to Athens, where it funded the building of the Athenian Acropolis. Uh, and they put half of the population on the public payroll and maintained a position of the dominant power in the Greek world. So you see how much things changed just because of that discovery of the silver mines. But this brings us to a, a very famous phrase that was developed and from a historian, the Thucydides trap. And... Just to give some background to this, Thucydides was a, a great historian uh, from Greece. As expected from this development you've just described, uh, Arif, the increasing wealth and assertiveness of Athens led to resentment amongst other city-states and eventual conflict, described by the uh, historian Thucydides. In his epic History of the Peloponnesian War from 431 to 404 BCE, Thucydides' statement, and I quote, It was the rise of Athens and the fear that this instilled in Sparta that made war inevitable. Listeners should uh, remember this quote because when we look at all the conflicts that have happened in fair, you know, you can relate to this when a rising power comes and challenges another one. So this, this particular statement he made has led many modern commentators to reflect much more closely on this important work to understand rivalries and conflicts between an established empire and a rising new power. The conflict marked the end of Athenian command of the sea. The war between Athens and the city-state Sparta ended in 404 BC with an Athenian defeat after Sparta started its own navy, funded, believe it or not, by the Persians <laughs> who they had kicked out. Isn't it ironic? So I'm just, just to take us through this irony. Sparta's position as the number one city-state in Greece was to be short-lived. Continued Spartan ambition in central and northern Greece 
Asia Minor and Sicily once again dragged the city into protracted conflicts uh, with other city-states and with Persia from uh, 396 to 387 BCE. The result of these conflicts was that uh, King's peace where Sparta seceded her empire to Persian control, but Sparta was left to dominate Greece. Perhaps the real winner of the Polypalatian Wars was actually they Persia. They a clever one, the Persians. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and in the long term, uh, backwater territory of northern Greece called uh, Macedonia. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, and in 310 BCE, the ambitious Alexander III of Macedon, commonly known as Alexander the Great, conquered the Persian Empire and northern Greece. Alexander was a great admirer of uh, Cyrus the Great and quickly adapted the Persian bureaucracy and politics to govern his new empire. With access to all the gold and silver of the Persian empire, the silver mines of Athens, for instance, became irrelevant uh, as the price of silver collapsed. When Alexander died just a few years later, his empire quickly fragmented into three separate parts. I mean, Alexander's rise was truly amazing. You know, they all considered Macedonia as backward and useless and whatever. And yet his father prepared the grounds, really, to take over. And then Alexander was one of the most amazing generals in human history who, you know, went up to the Indus and had such a massive empire. But it was shortly, it was only a 10-year period in which he conquered. And then it fragmented and uh, fell apart. So Athens um, is usually referred to as the cradle of Western civilization and the birthplace of democracy. Athenian democratic system established in 508 BCE remained remarkably resilient and with a few brief interruptions remained in place for 180 years until 322 BCE. Athens was a centre for the arts, learning and philosophy, home of Plato's Academy and Aristotle's Lyceum. Athens was also the birthplace of Socrates, Plato, Pericles, Aristophanes and Sophocles, and many other prominent philosophers, writers and politicians of the ancient world. So let's move now to the next major empire, and that was the Roman Empire. Obviously, this goes back to what was happening to Greece and the rise. So whilst the Greek influence was being spread to much of Asia during the Hellenistic period, ushered in by Alexander the Great and his successors, a couple of new powers were beginning to make their presence felt across the Mediterranean. Um, We noted earlier that before the Phoenicians were swallowed by the Persian Empire, they had set up the colony of Carthage, on the coast of North Africa, as I said, the site of um, Tunisia. The city-state of Carthage became the most affluent and powerful political entity in the Mediterranean prior to the conflict with Rome, known as the Punic Wars. And these wars lasted from 264 to 146 BCE. The city's wealth was due not only to its advantageous position on the North African coast, from which it could control sea traffic between itself and its colony on Sicily. Control of Sicily was divided between Carthage and Rome, which was then just a small city-state on the Tiber River in Italy, in 264 BC, that is. As expected, this interaction led to a conflict between Carthage and Rome, so again the same old Thucydides trap version, when Rome was weak, the Carthaginian army, navy rather, uh, had long been able to enforce the treaty which kept the Roman Republic from trading in the Western Mediterranean. So the first Punic War happened in 264 to 241 BCE. 
uh, and it showed that Rome could be far more resourceful than Carthage could have imagined. At the end of the First Punic War, Carthage was forced to cede Sicily to Rome and pay a heavy war indemnity. So the cards were beginning to turn, Arif. Let's go through this phase now of the Mediterranean. So absolutely. So after the First Punic War, uh, Carthaginian possessions in Spain were just very limited. There was a few wealthy coastal cities in the south. Um, and in 237 uh, BC, uh, Hamilcar, the father of the legendary Carthaginian general Hannibal, carved out a, a quasi-monarchical a monarchical autonomous state uh, in its southeast. Um, and this gave Carthage the silver mines, agricultural wealth, manpower, uh, military facilities such as shipyards and territorial depth to stand up to future Roman demands with confidence. Um, in 226 BC, the Ebro Treaty was agreed with Rome, specifying the Ebro River as a northern boundary of the Carthaginian sphere of influence. And at some time during the next six years, Rome made a separate treaty with the city of Saguntum, which was situated well south of the Ebro River. Um, as expected in 219 BC, Hannibal besieged, captured and sacked Saguntum, and in spring 218 BC, Rome declared war on Carthage. This led to the Second Punic War, which lasted between 218 and 202 BC, and this was fought largely in northern Italy, as Hannibal had made the surprising move to march his forces over the Alps to Italy. Um, Hannibal won uh, every engagement against the Romans in Italy, and in 216 BCE he won his greatest victory at the Battle of Cannae, where an army of 80,000 Romans faced Hannibal's army of 50,000. Um, of the 80,000 Roman soldiers who took the field that day, 44,000 were killed, while Hannibal lost around 6,000 men. So you could see it was a devastating defeat for Rome, uh, and this resulted in a number of the Italian the city-states defecting to Hannibal. I mean, he was a truly amazing general. Amazing military leader. Firstly, getting across the Alps with all those elephants and uh, things. Absolutely amazing uh, achievement. And then the strategy in those battles. But Sorry, Arif, carry yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. Took them completely by surprise. Yeah. Um, so the people of Rome mobilized to defend their city, um, but Hannibal needed reinforcements for his army and siege engines. Um, his request for these essential supplies was refused by Carthage, because the Senate did not want to spend the money. So you can see here... It's going to be an incredible <laughs> mistake. But go on, carry on. How money can affect conflicts. Yeah. Um, now, Hannibal's troops, they were obviously quite exhausted after the battle at Cannae, and he had neither elephants nor siege engines to take the city. Uh, he did not even have enough men to reduce uh, the city by encircling it for a long siege. So he was finally drawn from Italy uh, and defeated by the Roman general Scipo Africanus, who, who lived between 185 to 129 BC at the Battle of Zama in North Africa in 202 BC. This goes to show how resources are so important, so important uh, in the military as conflict. they were for the Greeks to defeat the Persians. And here, for starving Hannibal of what he needed, they were so greedy, those senators. The history of the world would have been so different if he'd taken over Rome. But carry on. Uh, yes, uh, absolutely, Doc Zabit. Uh, very important uh, resources. So um, Hannibal's ultimate defeat was brought about by his own people's weakness for luxury, wealth and ease, uh, as much as by the Roman refusal to surrender after Cannae. Um, if Carthage had sent the requested men and supplies at this point, history could have been very, very different. But the Carthaginian elite did not want to spend any money on Hannibal's campaign, 
Uh, they fear that a victory for Hannibal may reduce their hold on power. Um, after defeating Hannibal uh, and Carthage in the Second Punic War, uh, which was between 218 to 201 BC, Rome found itself the dominant power in the Western Mediterranean, uh, and the massive influx of Iberian mine silver into the Roman economy fueled its unprecedented expansion. I mean, Spain's uh, been a very interesting uh, country for a lot of empires and a lot of it is to do with the resources and the metals and silver and uh, all sorts of other natural resources there. So uh, after the end of the Second Punic War, the Romans felt that Carthage was now obliged to bend to Roman will, so much so that the Roman senator Cato, the elder, ended all of his speeches, no matter what the subject, with the phrase, Further, I think that Carthage must be destroyed. <laughs> it's a bit like the Senate <laughs> in the US at times. <laughs> but anyway, so in 149 BC, Rome decided upon just that course of action. And the third Punic War, that's uh, 149 to 146 BC, began. So the Roman general Scipio Africanus the Younger, um, uh, 185 to 129 BC, besieged Carthage for three years until it fell. After sacking the city, the Romans burned it to the ground with the fires burning over 17 days. A modern myth was grown up that the Roman forces then sowed the ruins with salt so nothing would ever grow there again, but this claim has no basis in fact and has been questioned by many historians. It is said that Scipio Africanus wept when he ordered the destruction of the city and behaved virtuously toward the survivors of the siege. And often generals are, you know, I mean, obviously they have to kill, but they like to do it with um, some honor and not like the politicians who have Yeah, yeah. So I'm just, um, uh, again, now we have the rise of the Roman Republic because Rome was unchallenged. Uh, they had absolutely slaughtered uh, the Carthaginians. Mediterranean was there. So take us through the, uh, I mean, the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire, nearly a thousand years. Um, we will deal with the empire later, but take us through the Roman Republic bit. The Roman Republic was based on the Athenian model of governance. Power rested with the Senate and the ruling figures were two consuls who changed every year or so so that no one person could hang on to power. The Republic lasted around 500 years, starting from around 509 BC, as you stated, and ended in 27 BC with the establishment of the Roman Empire. If the Greek contribution to civilization through their great thinkers was mental and spiritual, that of the Rome was structural and practical. In essence, was the empire itself. The visible relics of Roman uh, technical accomplishment were diffused over an area running from the Black Sea to Britain's Hadrian's Wall in the north and the Atlas Mountains to the south. The capital, of course, uh, contained uh, some of the most spectacular uh, monuments. Britain was a backwater of Europe before the Romans' invasion, and as an island, it was protected to some extent uh, by the English Channel. However, Julius Caesar, the great Roman conqueror of Gaul, and later the founder of the Roman Empire, was keen to invade Britain, um, and he was annoyed uh, with the sympathy and support provided by the Britons uh, to the Gauls, for instance. However, his two attempts to invade Britain in 55 BCE and 54 BCE were not successful. The Romans had to wait until 43 AD before they could successfully invade Britain. 
This was during the reign of Emperor Claudius, uh, and the importance of Britain was spelled out by the Roman historian and senator uh, Tacitus. And he said, and I quote, Britain yields gold, silver, and other metals uh, to make it worthy of conquering, um, so Tacitus uh, declared. So when Claudius in 43 AD began the conquest of uh, Britain, the Romans may well have seen themselves as civilizing influence on Britons. However, the Britons saw things very differently. Indeed, uh, I mean, no victim sees any potential uh, uh, conqueror as virtuous. It's interesting what they wrote about the Romans, isn't it? Well, we have a quote here now from uh, Tacitus himself, uh, and it's quoted in Cameron in, on page uh, 198, and I quote, We, the last man on earth, this is, Bri- this is a Britain. Yeah, this is kind of yeah, Britain, yeah. yes. Yeah. So we, the last man on earth, the last of the free, have been shielded uh, and, until today by very remoteness and the seclusion to which we are famed. But brigands of the world, I mean, that's like gang of thieves, brigands <laughs> of the world, the Romans, they meant. They're uh, to the Romans, yeah, yeah. yeah. Have exhausted the land uh, of their, by their in- indiscriminate plunder and now they ransack the sea. The wealth of an enemy excites their cupidity, um, his poverty, their lust of power. East and West have failed to uh, glut their maw. They are unique in being as violent tempered to attack the poor as the wealthy. Robbers, butchery, uh, riping, and liars called empire. They create a desolation and they call it peace. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, between the ruler and the ruled, and now the different views. Uh, yes, basically, the Britons, uh, the Romans were gang of invaders who wanted yeah. their resources. Yeah, yes, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yes. So anyway, the the Roman Empire, uh, like uh, Alexander the Great's empire, was acquired by the absorption of older empires, uh, the Greek and Egyptians, and later uh, farming societies, the Gauls, the Britons, and the Germans. Uh, military power was the ultimate basis of Roman Empire, but this was inseparably linked to administrative and political skill. Um, Caesario, who campaigned for consul as a chief magistrate, that is, in 63 BC, knew much about the empire, and like many politicians of this day and age, knew how to secure votes. And he, he writes, this in Will Durant's The Story of Civilization, and I quote, he says, the whole system of credit and finance which is carried on here at home is that is in Rome is inextricably bound up with the revenues of the Asiatic provinces. If these revenues are destroyed, our system of credit will crash. Prosecute with all your energies the war against the methidates by which the glory of the Roman name, the safety of our allies, our most valuable revenues, and the fortunes of innumerable citizens will be effectively preserved. So, you know, resources are important for maintaining great big empires. Now, whilst uh, prolonged warfare reinforced the day-to-day power and the moral authority of the Senate, the expansion of territory led to serious problems at home. Having seen the rise of gangsterism, corruption and murder disfiguring public life and discrediting the Senate, Julius Caesar, who had been elected as consul in 59 BC, took a step which was to mark the end of the Roman Republic. So after accumulating enormous wealth and gaining the support and loyalty of the army, Caesar decided to march on Rome in 49 BC. The Senate sent for Pompey, the other great general of the Romans, 
um, in the east to defend Rome. Pompey was defeated in 48 BC and the Senate named Caesar dictator for a year and then in 46 BC for the decade and then in 44 BC dictator for life and so the deified Caesar was born. However, before he could do much more, on the 15th March 44 BC, he appeared in the Senate, was assassinated by his friends, basically, who knew him, and they stabbed him in the back. So, Arif, now we start seeing the build-up of the empire, the Roman Empire. So, take us through that phase. Yes, so by the time Caesar died, uh, the Roman Empire was more or less in place. Uh, and after years of racking civil wars, uh, it was taken over by Caesar's great nephew and his adopted son, uh, Octavian, uh, who in 27 BC, he received the honorific title of Augustus uh, the Illustrious. Um, by the end of the Republic, uh, the city of Rome had achieved a grandeur befitting the city of an empire which dominated the whole of the Mediterranean. Uh, at that time, it was the largest city in the world. Um, estimates of its peak population, they range from 450,000 to over 3.5 million. Um, but the most popular estimates are between 1 to 2 million people. Now, this grandeur increased under Augustus, who completed Caesar's projects and added many of his own, such as the Forum Augustus and the Ara Pacis. Uh, I believe that this is a, sort of a, a, an altar monument. Um, and he is said to have remarked that he found Rome a city of brick and he left it a city of marble. Um, I think the actual phrase in Latin, it's been a long time since I've uh, studied Latin, but I'll just have a go at what the, the phrase is. It's urbum latirium inventit, marmorium reliquit. So by now, uh, Rome was now a monarchy and this was demonstrated by the succession of five members of the same family. Uh, Augustus embodied Rome's sense of a historical destiny and he had much personal integrity and authority being celebrated by the poet Horace as the guardian of the ancient virtues. Um, Augustus bequeathed to the state a capable successor, his stepson Tiberius, who was a conscientious ruler and he was quite unusual because he rejected deification with the words, I am mortal and I have mortal obligations to fulfil. I shall be content if it is thought that I have discharged the duties of a prince. Unfortunately for Rome, the emperors who followed him left a shameful legacy. The successors to Tiberius, um, Gaius Julius Caesar Germanicus, nicknamed Caligula, was tyrannical. Um, his preferred entertainments were public executions and torture. He exhibited his wife as nakedly as himself in front of his friends and wanted to marry his sister. So t a totally a crazy guy, uh, um, to be honest. Eventually he was killed and Claudius was uh, um, proclaimed as uh, uh, emperor. Uh, Claudius was a bit incompetent as well and he was replaced by another incompetent, not guess Nero. You know, many of the emperors who came afterwards were pretty useless, really, as far as the legacy of Rome goes. But Amjit, um, to, to tell us a little bit more, uh, later on some decent uh, emperors came, but take us through the period. Many emperors rose and continued to engage in foreign wars to expand the empire and initiate public projects to keep the citizens in Rome and elsewhere distracted and uh, compliant. Rome reached its greatest territorial expanse during uh, the reign of uh, Trojan, uh, thus from uh, 98 AD to 117 AD. 
Uh, around 140 uh, of the common era, Roman politicians passed laws to keep the votes of poorer citizens by introducing a grain doll, uh, giving out cheap food and entertainment. It was called bread and circuses, became the most effective way to, to rise to power. The conquest of Egypt and the Nile Delta provided plenty of bread or wheat uh, for Rome to feed their citizens. And according to historical records, nearly 20% of uh, Rome's one million population were given daily supply of grain. The circuses referred to the gladiatorial games, which had been upgraded and held in places like the Colosseum with free food and wine and rather violent entertainment. The construction of Colosseum had started around 70 AD and it was completed uh, in 80 AD, so it took 10 years to complete the Colosseum. It could hold as many as fifty to 80,000 spectators and thousands of people crammed into the Colosseums uh, to shout for their favourite gladiators as they or he displayed his skills and slaughtered others in the ring in order to stay alive. The emperors and the elite watched from their special galleries as the mindlessly drunk crowds would enjoy the violent displays with men killing men and sometimes wild beasts killing men. 9,000 animals were slain during a 100-day celebration to mark the opening of the Colosseum, for instance. On another occasion, 11,000 were later killed as a part of a 123-day festival uh, involving 10,000 gladiators, and that was held in uh, 107 AD by the Emperor Trojan. To support their enormous empire, the Romans used one of the world's most developed coinage systems. Coins of brass, bronze, copper, silver and gold in the imperial system were minted and circulated under strict rules for weight, sizes, value and metal composition. The popularity and value of Roman coins became so great that they could be found as far as east in India. In the early empire, that's uh, sort of 30 BC to AD 231, the Roman government paid for what it needed in gold and silver. The denarius, the silver coin, that would become the mainstay of Roman economy, was first struck in 211 BC. It remained the backbone of the Roman economy for five centuries. When it was first introduced, the denarius contained nearly 4.5 grams of pure silver and remained that way throughout most of the Republican period. The silver content and value of the denarius slowly decreased over time. The debasement of the metal purity in coins fluctuated with the strength of the empire and was mainly an indication of the state lacking precious metals, um, reduced treasury and inflation. I think we're coming towards the end of the program, Arif. Should we just see how this debasement affected the economy? So you just take us through some of the main points. Yes, so adding more coins of poorer quality into circulation didn't help increase prosperity. It just transferred wealth from away from the people, and it meant that more coins were needed to pay for goods and services. This led to increasing inflation, and soldiers, for example, they wanted higher wages uh, as the value or quality of coins diminished. Thus, Kalkala uh, had to raise wages, uh, the wages of soldiers by 50% in 210 AD. Now, in 270 AD, uh, Emperor Aurelian tried to restore the value of Roman coins by recalling all coinage uh, and reminting with at least 5% silver in new coins. This restored confidence for a while, but with wars and public projects that needed to be funded through increased taxation on businesses and rich, things got worse. Um, And the government actually resorted to confiscating private property to filling uh, the empty state coffers. 
Uh, by the time the emperor Decolation came to power in 301 AD, uh, inflation in the empire was surging. Uh, and to get this under control, he issued an edict of prices, which was a massive list of all of the wages and prices people could charge for goods and services. And anyone who disobeyed this list could face the death penalty. Uh, all that this meant was is that people closed up shop because they couldn't make a profit based on those prices. Uh, and this resulted in another edict in which he said that every son had to go into his father's business again under the penalty of death. So almost forcing people to trade at fixed prices, which obviously was never never likely to work. When um, Diocletian issued the edict of prices, a well-preserved copy of which was discovered later on in 1970, in 301 AD, the price of gold was, for instance, uh, 50,000 denarius per pound. We know from transactions received dated 50 years later that the price of gold had risen to 2.12 billion denarius per pound. In other words, the prices of gold was 42,400 times greater 50 times after the edict. Uh, and that is called hyperinflation. And it's probably the first documented case of it. The impact of this on the Roman currency-based trade was devastating as the consequences of the economic system reverted back to the barter system. To put this into perspective, we need to see the impact of this hyperinflation in relation to the purchasing power of a citizen. In modern age, if an average new car sold for about 2,050 years ago, the average car today would sell for 85 million. That is truly hyperinflation and it shows what's happening in the current uh, uh, cycle of business as well in the countries. So I think um, in his concluding remarks... um, yeah, I say the the soaring uh, logistical and admin costs, and no precious metals left to plunder from enemies. The Romans uh, levied more and more taxes against the people to sustain the empire. This led to disillusionment and disobedience amongst the citizens and the army. And although Rome had been in decline for a long time, its massive army had ensured for over eight hundred years that Rome would be safe from enemy attacks. However, with a weak economy and a weakened army and a rising resentment amongst the conquered people, the boundaries of Rome became smaller and smaller, and Rome was sacked by the barbarian tribes, first by Alaric on 24 August 410, and then twice more on 2nd June 455 and 11th July, and that brought the end of Rome as it is. And it just goes to show why... You to support big empires and big armies and big projects, you need a good economy, strong economy, and uh, you need money. And uh, I think we've uh, done a good job to today uh, on really showing how different empires have risen and how uh, uh, coins and gold and silver and all of the resources have helped them shape their empires. So thank you, Amjit, and thank you, Arif. Hope listeners have uh, uh, found this informative and enjoyable. Please do give us your feedback on uh, Twitter handle at VI Living History and go to the website www.voiceofislam.co.uk and under the program section you'll see over 40, 50 uh, living history programs on a variety of topics. So until the next program, Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh.